0: Our great Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you that it is life to us, we thank you that it shows Jesus to us, we thank you that it reveals to us your great plans and purposes for this world and for your people. Father, we pray now as we do hear this passage read out, we pray for the ability to understand it, we pray for our hearts that are soft to receive it, we pray for lives that are able to be moulded by it. Please do that all in us by your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Haley's going to read for us from Genesis chapter 12, and uh, if you have one of the church Bibles, there'll be a little bookmark at that point. Thanks, Haley.
1: Good morning. Today's Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 20. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say that you are my sister, so I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But when the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah, so Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had.
0: Uh, Just a couple of things before we do get into the passages. Uh, Duncan said the outline on the leaflet runs out about two-thirds of the way through. Uh, Try not to be too distracted by that, but outlines are really good unless they're distracting. In this case, it could well be the case. Uh, I obviously forgot to send page two through or something like that, so I'm sure it was all my fault. Second thing, which is really preliminary, when you um, come to this section of the Bible, Genesis 12 through to 25, uh, sometimes it can be confusing to know who we're talking about. Uh, As we're reading there, we heard Abram, Sarai. We've already been talking about Abraham and Sarah, and uh, that that may be a bit puzzling to you if you're not really familiar with this section of the Bible. Uh, We start off with Abram and Sarai, and then several chapters... Into the account about Abraham's life, God actually changes his name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And it relates to these promises here in Genesis 12. We won't spend time on that today, but I just wanted to signal, and if I wander between Abram and Abraham, or Sarai and Sarah, you'll understand I'm just a little bit confused too, but, uh, but you'll understand the connection between those two. They're the same people. Uh, they, are, they are equivalents, and so don't be too distracted by that either. Uh, let, me, let me pray that having distracted you with what I've just said, we can focus on uh, the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your, your wonderful promises to us and your Son, and Father, we pray that as we consider this your Word today, uh, we won't just be hearing my a voice, but we'll actually hear you speaking to our hearts and minds, uh, changing them, convicting us, transforming us, uh, but especially giving us a window into who you are and your character and your purposes, uh, so that we might know and encounter the Lord of the universe. That's our, our great desire. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we go to Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, it's like a Hall of Fame of the Great Ones of Faith of the Old Testament. there's a great list of them uh, that are put before us about people in the Old Testament who faithfully honoured God. People like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, and there's a host of others. But in Hebrews 11, uh, the one that dominates that chapter is Abraham. Let me tell you the way in which Abraham is spoken of in that chapter. Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him, of the same promise. Abraham is a giant among believers. Right? He is the, the uh, uh, Old Testament equivalent of Gary Ablett in the AFL. You know, He just straddled the Old Testament in terms of the way in which he had enormous impact. But what we discover as you are reading and hearing Genesis chapter 12 read is that Abraham, this giant among believers, has clay feet. Like he's not all squeaky clean and and does everything the right way. He's a man who is unlikely to receive the husband of the year award, uh, as you've heard Genesis 12 read. Genesis 12, once we get to verse 11, there's a famine in the land of Canaan, the land that God has taken him to, uh, promised him for him and his uh, uh, descendants. And then in this land, uh, because of this famine, Uh, they decide to move off to Egypt in order to survive. Let me remind you what happens. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are, and when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, and they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Now I want to say, if I take Sue out for our 36th wedding anniversary on Tuesday night, and we're at a table, and a glamorous 20-something young blonde woman comes up to the table, obviously knows me, and I introduce Sue as my sister, I'm gonna be in trouble, all right? Uh, you know I mean? This is not exactly exemplary behavior that we're looking at in this context. Abraham, at this point, is selfish, he's manipulative, and he is gutless. Not too many other ways to describe that. Abraham, this great man of faith. So is Abraham someone that we should imitate? He's often portrayed that way, I think, in Christian circles, you know, the great example of what you should imitate. And and yes, we heard from Hebrews 11, we should follow his example. Uh, But actually, when you read through this account of Abraham, Genesis 12 through to Genesis 25, there are lots of things about his life that you might want to just put to one side and not treat as an example of how you should actually live the Christian life. And in fact, if we treat Abraham as a case study on how to live the Christian life in order to honor God, we'll miss the main point of this part of the Bible. We'll get it completely wrong. It's the danger of reading the Bible through a a me-centred lens. To read it just in terms of what this tells me about what I should do based on, on what I see and read there. That's the danger. So the danger with Abraham as we read through is that if you're thinking about how to make a decision about moving house or changing job, we go to Genesis chapter 12. Here's an example of Abraham grappling with that sort of issue. Or if you're having trouble having children, uh, well, this whole section is about the God who provides a child, Isaac, through miraculous means. Or if you're feeling like you want to throttle your kids, uh, then you go to Genesis chapter 22, uh, when Abraham is about to kill Isaac, his only son, and God restrains him. Right? All helpful little bits of advice for parents. Uh, that's not what it's about, though, is it? I mean, you know instinctively that it cannot be about that. So the better question to ask as we come to the Bible generally, but especially this section of the Bible, is how does Abram fit into the plan of God? See, it's, the, it's the bigger picture of what is God doing through him, not just what do we learn from his example. What is God doing through him? And what I want to do is, is look at the God who makes gracious promises to his people and takes action to keep those promises. I want to consider the background to the call of Abram. I want to look at the word that Abram received and what it's about, especially those promises that we heard down the front here and still on view there. And then how Abram connects with us. So point number three is the one that's missing. Uh, and if you think in thirds about what I'm doing, then you, you won't, won't feel like the second half of the sermon took much longer than the first half, if that makes sense. Okay, background to Genesis twelve obviously is Genesis one to eleven, these early chapters in the Bible. Uh, what we see here with Abraham here in chapter twelve is that he is called in the face of an emergency situation facing the whole world. That's the problem that's created by Genesis one to twelve. In Genesis one to two, God creates the universe and it's good. Uh, When you read through Genesis 1, you see God makes something. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And uh, he he makes people. It's very good, right? That's the God who creates. And he makes people for relationship with himself. He makes people so they they express unity. Adam and Eve have oneness uh, with each other and he creates the world and people so there's harmony in the created order and good relationship between people and the world. That's the nature of the way God creates things. When you get to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they they reject the authority of God. They say, shove God out of the picture, we'll just do things our way. And that disobedience leads to consequences or curses that you can read in Genesis chapter 3. There's a broken relationship with God. There's disharmony between the man and the woman. And there's a breakdown in terms of the created order, a consequence of rebellion against God. Then from Genesis 4 through to Genesis 11, we see, in a sense, a magnification or an escalation of the way in which rebellion against God or sin works itself out in the world. Uh, Genesis 4 and 5, we see Cain and Abel Uh, Cain, because of jealousy with his brother Abel, kills him. Uh, That's the situation there. From Genesis 6 through to Genesis 9, Noah, a righteous man, uh, but one of the few left on the face of the planet at that point, and therefore God judges the world uh, with a flood, uh, but spares the family of Noah. There's just the ripple effects of sin. Once you get to Genesis 10 and 11, uh, we discover this incident of the Tower of Babel. Uh, People have not learnt uh, from the the incident with Noah and what the consequences there. And they don't just rebel against God, they build a tower to the heavens. That is, they they try and operate as if they are God, build themselves up to God's picture. And God scatters them. He judges again and puts them to one side uh, so they can't perpetuate their rebellion against him. The situation gets worse and worse. God never completely abandons the world. There's always grace elements in each of the cases of the problems and the rebellion of people against God. But when we get to Genesis 11 and God pronounces judgment, he's effectively silent. There's no word of grace towards people at that point. And what you have in the second half of Genesis chapter 11 is a genealogy or a family tree that forms the bridge between the Tower of Babel and Abraham. We have a list of the family tree that gets us there. One of the things we discover at the end of chapter 11 is that Abram is married to Sarai, and this little tidbit of information gets thrown in in chapter 11, verse 30. Now, Sarah, or Sarai, was barren, she had no children. Now, that's, that's an interesting bit of information to have just before you get that promise about descendants, isn't it? That are going to happen through Sarai, the barren one. The problem is there, despite the fact that God subsequently then makes a big promise about how she'll have children and they'll be the start of a great nation. And I think that's significant. Back in Genesis 1, God spoke and he created the whole universe, the whole world, from nothing. In fact, the repeated phrase in Genesis 1 is God said and it was. God said and it was. In fact, we're hearing from a friend on Thursday who's been catching up with someone to read the Bible for the first time, someone who's not not a follower of Jesus, and they've been reading through Genesis, and they said, how come these early chapters of Genesis are so repetitive? It just seemed, you know, God says and it happens, God says and it Why didn't you just summarize it, you know? Uh, but the whole point is the repetition. It reinforces the authority of God, his control, the way he rules over this world, and the fact that he creates by his word from nothing. That's what happens. But now, when we get to chapter 12, God is about to speak again. And he will fill an empty Worm, by his word that's the promise that's here chapter 12 verse 1 leave your country your people and your father's household and go to the land that i will show you here's the command and then he makes promises verse 2 i will bless you it's the idea of protection and care for abram and his descendants Uh, second promises about land I will give you land. It's the place of Canaan, a home. When he's a wanderer, God will provide. The third promise, descendants, uh, people, especially here, children. Verse 2, a great nation. But remember, Sarah's barren. Sarah's barren. It will require a miracle for that to happen. And then the fourth thing, the blessing for the whole world comes out in verse 3 of chapter 12. Blessing a world that is under judgment, under the wrath of God, a world that exists after Genesis 3. But God says, despite that, I will bless the world through Abram. That's his promise. And so you come to these promises at the start of chapter 12 and you think, that is wonderful and it is looking so good. And there are all sorts of positive signs that unfold here in chapter 12 about the way these promises will be fulfilled as you see Abraham obeying. So verse 4, we're told that Abram goes with his whole household. Uh, Hebrews 11 has already reminded us he leaves the security of home. His security is in God and his word and his promises. It's great. Then in verse 6, we're told how Abraham travels through this land that's God promised, the, the land of Canaan. And in verses 7 and 8, uh, Abram puts up an altar at Shechem, and then later he puts up an altar at Bethel. And there's a sense which what's, what's happening is God has promised him this land, and he's setting up these, these sort of worshipping boundary markers around the land. And it's his way of saying, I am trusting you, God. I'm dedicating this land to you because you have promised to give it to me. Any sacrifices to the God who has made these promises. It looks good. But it doesn't look all good, does it? As we've already heard. Verse 10. He's in the land that God, God's promised, but there's a, a famine. Remember, this is the land that God has told him to go to. It'll be the land for him and his descendants. So in the face of this famine, verse 10... He went to Egypt to live for a while. Now let me ask you this question. At this point, does Abram trust the God who can speak and create out of nothing? God's told him to go to the land. No food, so we'll go to Egypt. Can the God who speaks and creates out of nothing provide for the needs physically of his family, food, so they can survive? So I think already here you have that indication that he doesn't actually trust God at this point. And that's reinforced by his behavior when he gets to Egypt. Verse 11, he says to Sarai, so you are my sister. Now, they, they do actually have the same uh, father, but different mothers. So there's sort of steps. Uh, And I won't go into the details of that. So it's a half truth about it. But it's clearly a statement to manipulate the situation for self-protection because he doesn't actually trust God. He's a true descendant of Adam. And Pharaoh, we hear, likes the look of Abram's sister, right? And so he takes her into his palace, into his harem. Then verse 17, we're told the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. And so Pharaoh summons Abram and he says to him, what have you done to me? I think a fair question. Quite a reasonable question. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Hmm, Good follow-up question. Quite reasonable. When he says uh, those words to Abraham, what have you done to me? If we've been reading through this whole section of the Bible, we'd be reminded of words that God speaks earlier in the book of Genesis. me re- remind you what they are. Back in Genesis 3 verse 13, when there's the rebellion by Adam and Eve in the garden, God actually says to the woman in the garden, What have you done? Later in Genesis 4 verse 10, God says to Cain after he kills his brother Abel, what have you done? And now Pharaoh, a worshipper of foreign gods, says to the worshipper of the true and the living God, what have you done? See, Pharaoh actually acts more nobly than Abram in this situation. 12, verse 19, chapter 12, verse 19. Pharaoh says to Abraham, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Sounds quite polite, really, doesn't it? Uh, Quite pleasant. Uh, When you actually Get the original language here. It's not pleasant at all. He is outraged, actually, at the way he's been treated. So only the verbs in this section, or the, you know, the key words, are highlighted. There's no padding around it. The, uh, the editor of our Bibles has helpfully patted it out so we can see the flow of it. Here's the way it should read. When Pharaoh gives back Sarai to Abram. here, wife, take Go. <laughs> Do you get the way he's feeling at this point? No? That's what's going on here. And when you've heard the promises earlier in Genesis 12, you're tempted to have a bit of you know, empathy with this guy. Isn't Abraham meant to be a blessing to the whole world? Didn't we hear that in the kids' talk? Isn't he meant to be someone who just pours out the abundance of God's grace? on other people but rather Abram at this point is a curse to Pharaoh and Pharaoh wants nothing to do with Abram or his God he pushes him away so Abram an example of a great man of faith oh yeah there are are examples of the way in which he does trust and follow God But no, he is a mixed bag, isn't he? A bit like you and me, I suspect. That's the reality. You see, this is much more about God's commitment to bless. So what I want to ask for just a few moments is, and this is where the sermon outline runs out, just for a few moments, what does this teach us about God what does it teach us about the way he keeps his promises? And I want to ask the question, how does God actually fulfill these promises in Jesus? Now, that's a huge chunk that I could spend the rest of the year talking on, but I've only got a few minutes. So bear with me as I go very dot point as we think about some of these issues. So how is what happens to Abraham? If I can put it in different language, how is it the gospel about Jesus that is preached beforehand? Let me read from Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 in the New Testament. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed through you, quoting from Genesis chapter 12. Announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Now, I don't think that God actually told Abraham... I will send my son Jesus you know, in 1,800 years' time, and he will be born and fulfill all the promises I'm making here. I don't think he had a word or a specific clarity on exactly the way God would do it. Uh, but I think what, what Galatians is saying is that God made the promises to Abraham that he ultimately does fulfill in the Lord Jesus Christ and completes in that way. So how is this good news about Jesus How is it somehow announced here to Abraham almost 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus? Let me just make a couple couple of quick points. The thing this encounter between God and Abraham does remind us of is that a relationship with God is always by his mercy and grace. Why does Abraham get called by God? Is there anything special about Abram at this point? Is there anything unusual about his circumstances? And you know, does God say, you know, so Abram, I must have him on my team. Not many like him are in the place. <laughs> I don't think so. And in fact, everything about the background of this reminds you that that's the case. Uh, if you went back to Genesis chapter 11, we're told that uh, Terah, Uh, is the father of Abraham. You can pick up the sort of family tree line, particularly in chapter 11, verse 27. When you go to Joshua 24, verse 4, so it's a couple of books on here from Genesis, this is what we discover about Terah and Abraham and Nahor, uh, Abraham's brother. Terah, uh, the father of Abraham and Nahor, served other gods. Do you get what is being said here? Abraham was the worshipper of foreign gods, and the true and living God chose this worshipper of foreign gods to serve him and called him into relationship with himself. Why did God choose Abraham? Well because he was a complete ratbag and a complete rebel against him and someone who did not deserve to be in relationship with God. That's why he chose him. It's clear, isn't it? That's why. Why does God choose Abraham? Because he has a very fertile wife. And if you're going to have a lot of descendants, that's what you need, don't you? She is barren. If this is going to happen, it will be, go- be because God achieves it. Not because Abraham and Sarah do anything about it at all. Why does God choose Abraham? Well, 10 verses into Genesis chapter 12, like we've only just started, and we discover that he displays Abraham displays all the self-centered, manipulative and sinful nature of Adam. Don't seem to have made much progress at all, really. Why does God choose Abraham? It is because God is generous and God is gracious. There's no other reason. And let me say God never changes in his character. Let me remind you of what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can I say today that if you count yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is only because God has been merciful and gracious and forgiving towards you. You don't bring anything to the table except your sin. That's very sort of confronting in a way. Uh, you know, and this is not the pastor buttering up the congregation morning. You've probably picked that one up, haven't you? Uh, that is, this is... This is the way our God works. But isn't it a relief? Isn't it a wonderful thing that we have a relationship with God because God is gracious and kind to us? You don't get into it based on performance. Abraham didn't. The reason you are in a relationship with God is because you're a sinner. Now, if you're here today and you're not in a relationship with God or you're not clear whether you are or not, can I just say, this is the way it'll happen? You will bring nothing to the table, and God, you'll realise the merciful grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he's willing to forgive you despite the fact that you do not deserve it. And when you get to that point, then you understand the way God works. He's always worked that way. He continues to work that way. And it's a great relief. And it's, it's overwhelming in terms of seeing what God is like. That this God, the God who made the universe, is kind towards me, even though I don't deserve it at all. It's great. Second, just point of application, really briefly, how are these promises, the one that we were looking at with the children, the one we've read for ourselves, how are these promises to Abram fulfilled in Christ. It's interesting, with uh, Abraham, uh, he saw none of these promises fulfilled, actually. It's interesting, really. Uh, by the end of his life, he's had Isaac. So not exactly a multitude at this point. Uh, and, and in due course, that's unfolded. In terms of the land, he owns a burial plot in Canaan, the promised land. That's it. He's, he's seen it, he owns a fairly small bit of it, but not much really. How has Abraham been a blessing to the whole world? Well, Pharaoh is actually a pretty good example of the way it works during his life. There, there are points at which he interacts and blesses, but largely not much to show for it actually at all. But Abram, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, he did trust that God would deliver on his promises. And he does that through his descendants. If you enter the start of Matthew's gospel, which is all about Jesus, there you see the family tree of Jesus starts with Abraham. And you get to Jesus. That is, God does provide a descendant from Abraham, who is the one through whom all the promises of God are going to be delivered descendants, again Galatians 3, understand that those who believe in Jesus are children of Abraham. God fulfills his promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, during the time I've been preaching here this morning, those who are experts in this area, missiologists, they tell me that somewhere between twenty and 30,000 people across the globe have put their trust for the first time in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not because this has been an exceedingly long sermon. <laughs> it is because God is powerfully at work in the world. God is blessing the world through this descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that you've been blessed in Christ too. These blessings for the whole world are qualitative blessings you've received. Forgiveness, adoption, being redeemed, children of God, Peace with God. When it comes to the land, how has God delivered? It's interesting again in Hebrews chapter 11, when it comes to that question of land and Abraham, this is what it says there. Abraham looked forward to the city and the foundations, whose architect and builder is God. See, ultimately, this, this little block of land on one side of the Mediterranean. Canaan is not the ultimate land that God is talking about. It is the place that God will bless his people so they can bless the whole world but the ultimate place land is dwelling with the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity in heaven. The promises that he makes there. God has come through on all his promises in the Lord Jesus. They are secured by what he has done final point I want to make is uh, uh, Abraham, though, is a man who trusts in God. And he is a model for us in that sense of living by faith in the promises of God. He's called by God. He goes from his family, uh, security. He goes from the known to the unknown. And what basis does he have for doing that? Well, his future is secured by God's promise, that's all. Nothing else, just the God who makes promises and who stands behind his word. And like Abraham, I think, we are tempted to think that that isn't enough and faced with different circumstances or difficulties, we'll find ourselves trying to provide for ourselves rather than actually trusting in the God who will do it. And we'll put our trust in tangible things, things of this world that we think will give us security. Uh, They can be the resources we have or how smart we are or the wisdom we bring or our cleverness, our health, uh, family, that's the key to being happy, relationships. Like Abraham, there, there is the great risk that we'll find our hearts tethered, you know, tied to this world, as if that is the key to life. And our focus can be on what we think is in our best interests. as we uh, look around, what we can see, taste, touch and feel. I think that's the key, rather than the promises and the hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'd like to do, just to conclude, uh, is just to read from a section in the New Testament, which is a charge to the people of God to believe in the promises of God, to live with the knowledge that this is a temporary dwelling that we have and that our hope is to be in God and the promises he makes to us. I want to read just from 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 12 and I'll conclude with what God says to us in these words. Just listen, hear it for yourself. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen.